0: Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, we'll read the first 11 verses. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. After Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they went to Jerusalem. There was the Council of Jerusalem in which they reported to uh, the, the apostles there, what had happened, and how God had brought salvation to the Gentiles. And the council at Jerusalem gave them their overwhelming support. After that, Paul and Barnabas were about to begin a second missionary journey, and they, they split. They went separate ways over a question of uh, another associate of theirs. So Paul took Silas and set out on his second missionary journey. Timothy joined them in Lystra, and Paul's plan was to visit the churches that had been begun in the first missionary journey, to go around to those churches and strengthen them. As they attempted to go to Ephesus, however, the Spirit prevented them from going. So they tried to go north to Bithynia, and again, they were stopped, and they could not go that direction. So they journeyed west to Troas. There at Troas, they were joined by Luke, who writes the book of Acts and tells us much of this. It was there, at Troas, joined by Luke, that Paul had a vision of a man standing before him, a man from Macedonia, calling to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Acts 16 says, When he had seen the vision immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul, Timothy, and Luke, and Silas, all together they head to the region of Macedonia and they enter into the city of Philippi. Philippi was an old city when I get there and had a, a storied past. Um, about 4th century B.C., Uh, Philip of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great, took the city and named it for himself. That's where we get Philippi. But then, a hundred years or so before Paul arrives there, Mark Anthony and Octavian caught up with and defeated the assassins of Julius Caesar. And because of the victory there, they celebrated by making it a Roman colony. And so you have this city in, in northern Greece, surrounded by greek cities and greek culture and right in the middle of it is this city that is very roman because it was a roman colony the citizens of philippi were considered roman citizens and uh, they enjoyed the privileges and uh, benefits of being a roman citizen there were a number of roman soldiers who retired to philippi so the city had a very roman flavor um the official language of the city was Latin, even though some of the cities around it spoke Greek. So they were kind of a Roman oasis that really enjoyed their Roman citizenship and and all of that that went along with it, um, surrounded by Greek culture and Greek language, etc. When Paul arrived there, that was the situation, a very Roman city. And his reception in Philippi included the conversion of a woman named Lydia. Acts sixteen fourteen says that she was from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. She was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. After that, a church was begun and that church met in the home of Lydia. She invited them to stay there. Now, as Paul writes to the Philippians, the nature of this letter is, is different than the nature of a number of other letters that he writes. Most of the letters that we find Paul writing in the New Testament are letters addressing problems. We just saw that with Second Corinthians. There were a number of issues in the Corinthian church. And so the letter was kind of an apologetic and also a defense of, you know, it was a defense of his apostleship and of the gospel, and urging them that had not repented yet to repent. Uh, you see this in a number of letters. To the Galatians, You know, there's the problem of, of people who are tempted to go back to Judaism and adopt uh, things there and add it to Christ. But to the church at Philippi, it's a different letter. It's not that there are no issues whatsoever. There are. Um, they're just not to the, the same degree as we see in some of these other letters. There are hints, though, that there's some little disunity there that needs to be addressed. And so you see it, for instance, in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then in verses 14 and 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. And then in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, Paul says, I urge you, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. And so you see these little rumblings of disunity, and I do think he addresses that, although just not as pointedly or directly as he addresses some of the other problems in some of the other churches. But the letter has a different flavor to it than the other letters that he writes. And I believe it is because Paul enjoys... an especially close bond with the people in Philippi. As he addresses them in chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5, in his, his prayer, his every remembrance of them, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now participation in the gospel i don't think he just means the fact that you're believers also but it's really the idea of your fellowship in the gospel they have in a sense joined with and partnered with paul in a way that some other churches didn't and so there was a kinship there we saw it in chapter four just a moment ago when i was reading about euodia and syntiki he said that these women have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel Do you remember as we were looking at 2 Corinthians? The people evidently wanted to support Paul's ministry. And he wouldn't let them. He refused. I will not take money from you. But he acknowledges that he's taken money from others. Like Philippi. He'd received money from them in their poverty. But he wouldn't let the church at Corinth give him money. Because of the different situations in the two places. But here's a church that in the fellowship of the gospel that they enjoy, this partnership in the gospel that they enjoy, he has allowed them to help them in that way. And so he enjoys a a close bond with them. And as he finds himself now in prison, he writes to them, encouraging them, giving them a, a, a kind of a gentle warning, but encouraging them to remain joyful in whatever it is they're facing and in what he's facing. Many people have noted that the theme of joy occurs often in this letter. And it does. It pops up a number of times. But the letter is not a call to a generic kind of joy. You know, just just be happy. It's not that at all. But it's a particular kind of joy. Paul describes the joy that he knows and models... While he's imprisoned. Awaiting a verdict. While those he loves are under attack. In that situation. He describes joy. And he urges them to joy. But how do you have that kind of joy? Well I believe that the answer to that question. And the the theme of the book. Can be summed up in a few words that Paul gives us in verse 21. And that is. To live as Christ. For me, to live is Christ. How can Paul sit in chains and be happy to live as Christ? How can he await a, a, an answer, you know, a verdict, and he doesn't know which way it will go to live as Christ? How can he express joy while he watches churches that are under attack, and he loves these people and he's concerned for them? And you know, the natural tendency would to think, Would be to think, if I were there, I could do more. How do you remain joyful? To live as Christ. And this is where God has me. To live as Christ. And so, he not only believes that and lives that, he models it to the people at Philippi. His chains prevent him from going there for a face-to-face conversation. But he writes to them. And as this letter is read aloud to the church there, You have to wonder, was Lydia still hosting the church in her home? Maybe. Was the Philippian jailer sitting there in the first row with his family? You remember Paul and Silas locked up and they're singing hymns at night and the jail is opened up for them to escape and the jailer realizes it. He's afraid for his life. And they tell him, we're still here. And that man's converted in his house. Is he sitting there listening now? Maybe ten years later? Or that girl who was demon possessed. That people were using to make money. Whom Paul. Under the power of the Holy Spirit. Freed. Is she there? And is she listening? Were there Roman citizens there listening who once had worshipped the emperor. Now rejoicing in having a higher citizenship than Roman citizenship. And awaiting the return of their Lord and Savior. Knowing, as Paul states in chapter 3 and verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely some of those people were there. And they're encouraged as they hear Paul testify of how God is strengthening and enabling him so that he can face what he's facing with joy. And they're encouraged themselves to face what they face with joy. Tonight we're only going to look at verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi including the overseers and deacons. This is the letter's salutation. And you probably have noticed before that in the New Testament letters, often one of the first words is the author of the letter. It's like, hey, it's me. Our letters don't do that. We usually sign them at the end. We also often get it in an envelope, you know, and you see the return address. And so even as you pull it out of the mailbox, you look and you say, oh, this is from so-and-so. And depending on who it is, you know, if it's like a, a cell circular, you know, it may just go s- straight to the circle file. Do you have one of those A trash can? Or if it's somebody that you know, then you may open it as you're walking back to the house because you want to see what they had to say. Of course, with email, we don't get as many letters like that anymore, right? But you know what I'm talking about. Well, there's no envelope. For the Philippians. And so when they open up the scroll, the first word they see is, hey, this is who this is from. I'm sure Epaphroditus, who delivered it, would tell them. But still, here's the first word Paul. And so they're encouraged to read it. Um, Perhaps a modern day equivalent would be if your phone dies and you have to borrow someone's phone to text somebody else. Like, I'm running late. My phone died, and so I borrow a phone to text Elizabeth to tell her this is what happened. Well, probably the first thing I'm going to say, because it's a strange phone number, is this is Chuck. <laughs> you know, like, don't, don't just delete this. Read what I'm saying, because th- this is me. Anybody else, ever do that? So Paul says, it's me. <laughs> it's Paul. All of Paul's letters begin in somewhat of a common way. It's common in the sense of it was the, the custom of the day to begin with this kind of salutation. Paul does take it and and kind of Christianize it. I mean, he, he inserts ideas like grace and peace from God and our father and the Lord Jesus Christ that we see in verse two. That, you know, the Roman citizen who doesn't know the Lord Jesus would not have said. But it is. In other ways, a very common greeting It's the, the way that they did it in that time. It's also common, though, in the sense that there are a lot of common elements in each of Paul's letters as he introduces them. A lot of the things kind of stay the same so that if we're not careful, we can almost read his salutation and think, well, this is just boilerplate. Are you familiar with that term? It's the kind of stuff that doesn't change or it changes so little that you can almost copy and paste into every document, and maybe just one word changes here or there. We could think this is just boilerplate. And because it's that, it's unimportant. But it's not that. Everything Paul writes, he writes intentionally. And he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the little changes that are made from letter to letter often give us hints of what's to come in the rest of the letter. It often introduces concepts That he's going to develop more fully later. The opening to the letter of the Philippians contains several unique items. One of those is that as he introduces himself in Timothy he puts both of them under the same title. And what I mean is, there are other places where he he writes letters and he says, hey, it's Paul and Timothy. But it might say Paul, an apostle, and Timothy, our brother. But here, it's Paul and Timothy, and he identifies them both in a way that he does not identify them in the opening of any other letter. And that is as bondservants. Not Paul, the apostle, but Paul, the bondservant. Paul and Timothy are... Bond-servants of Christ Jesus. When he says bond-servants, it's really the word slaves. We might say bond-slaves, but it is the word slave. There are a number of words in the New Testament in Greek that are used to express the idea of being a servant. One of those is in verse 1 where we read the word deacons. It's a word for servant. But the word that Paul uses that's translated here bond servant, or in some of your Bibles, just servant, is a word for slave. And that's an important distinction. Slaves and servants are, are, are different. The nature of how they operate, how they serve, is different. A servant can quit. The whole idea, really of a bond servant, is kind of like that of a day laborer. You need some help for a few days and you find somebody who agrees to come to work, and they show up to work today, and at the end of the day, you pay them, tomorrow, they may not show up. And they're really under no obligation to. The slave doesn't have that option. The slave isn't a day laborer. The relationship of an employer to employee is very different than that of a master to a slave. The, the servant, the day laborer, he does his job, he goes home, and he can leave work. <laughs> you know, don't have to think about it again. But the slave remains a slave. The word slave is one that generally carries only negative connotations. When we think about the idea of slavery, we, we think of the fact that you know we're talking about property. I mean to be a slave is to say somebody owns me. And who wants to you know who likes that idea? It's not one that we're predisposed to. But it also often carries the idea of cruelty. We think of it in terms of of a cruel master and we're being made, subjugated, made to do something we don't really want to do. It's not a position we want to be in. We're being made to do things we don't want to do. And the whole situation is a cruel situation. The Philippians' experience with slavery in the Roman world would carry many of those same ideas. It would carry negative connotations. The citizens of Rome who live in Philippi would not willingly identify themselves as slaves. And so it must have been shocking when Paul and Timothy are introducing themselves as the writers of this letter. Really, Paul is the writer, Timothy with him. But they identify themselves to the Philippians whom they love as slaves of Christ Jesus. When they do that, we need as best we can to forget about all of our negative connotations for a minute, few minutes. Let's, what, what does he mean? He does not mean cruelty. He does not mean forced subjugation. What does he mean? What's Paul saying to us, to the Philippians, when he identifies himself in this way? Well, the idea of being a bond slave does carry... The idea of of ownership. I mean, he's still saying, I'm a slave, and he is identifying himself by that, saying, I belong to Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus owns me. He's also expressing the idea of obedience. As a person who belongs to Christ Jesus, obedience is not optional. He is the Lord, He is the Master. And I owe him obedience. But then as Paul uses the term, I think we have to also say that he means this. He is not the the forced slave of Christ Jesus. You know, someone who's been, been captured and pushed into a position he doesn't want to be in. He is the willing slave of Christ Jesus. There is nowhere else he would rather be. So let's look at those three ideas. First is the idea of ownership. And it's one we see throughout the New Testament, even if we don't kind of connect the dots and think, okay, this means he's, he's the Lord and master and, and I belong to him. It, it shouldn't be that hard to put together, but maybe you haven't thought about it. But think of just a few verses with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've been bought with a price. A price has been paid. You belong to Christ Jesus. Or in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes there, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Him. We're at His disposal whether we live or die. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is there urging the the elders of the church at Ephesus to shepherd the church of God, which He purchased with His own blood first corinthians seven twenty three you were bought with a price, so do not become the slaves of men first peter one eighteen and nineteen, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of christ we we have been bought with a price, we belong to him, and so um, if we belong to Him, that's just something we have to come to grips with. He has the right to uh, to rule us because He's the King of creation, but also as the one who has bought us with a price. We belong to Him in a number of ways, and one is by purchase. This idea of obedience is kind of included in that, though, isn't it? If He is the lord who rules you who owns you then obviously he has the right to expect that you obey him and you owe him obedience paul addresses this idea a bit in romans chapter 6 where he talks about the fact that we were slaves to sin but we've been freed from that slavery to serve a new master some of you remember uh, jordan preaching on that passage maybe last year, and what a a powerful sermon that was. Romans 6, verses 6 and 7 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. And then He goes on down in verse 16 and says, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You're the slave to whichever one you obey. It's not that you were autonomous, And now you're asking to be the slave of Christ. You were already a slave. You were a slave to that that you obeyed. And you've been freed from the dominion of that slavery to serve another. One who's infinitely better. So ownership, obedience, but also willingness. There's no sense in which Paul is is using this idea again to say I've been forced into this. He's not in the bonds of a cruel taskmaster who, who makes him do what he doesn't want to do, but rather one who, again, has conquered him by love and so worked in him that the very things God wants him to do are the things that he finds himself wanting to do himself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul speaks about the love of Christ controlling us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. I'm controlled or constrained by love, not, not by force or um, um, you know, threat, but by love. In Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, after speaking of the um, heritage that was his, as a Jew, he writes, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. It's a very different language than, than I'm being pushed into this thing that I don't want to do. All that was in the past, it's, it's like nothing in comparison to this glorious reality. And this is what I want. I count all that stuff as, as the you know, loss and, and rubbish that I may have him. And then in verse 12, he says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Christ has laid hold of me. I want to lay hold of that for which he has laid hold of me? But it's, there's a gladness and a willingness in all of that. And it's in the outflow of this description of, of being the joyful bondslave of Christ Jesus that Paul speaks to the Corinthians, pardon me, to the Philippians about being the slave of Christ Jesus and being joyful. Like the Philippians, we might hear the word slave and think about um, being powerless. You know, stripped of, of all rights and being completely powerless to do anything. But Paul speaks of being the bondslave of Christ more in terms of having a delegated authority. And in doing that, he picks up, I think, an idea that we see throughout the Old Testament. Let me give you a few verses. Deuteronomy 34, 5. Listen to how Moses is described here. So Moses, the servant of the Lord. The word servant there can also be described or, or, or translated as slaves. Moses, the servant of the Lord. Joshua 24, 29. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. Psalm 36, this is in the title, which David did write under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I believe. David says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Now, my point in reading each of those is, here are men who are in positions of leadership. Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to the border of the promised land. He's Moses, the servant of the Lord. Joshua takes them from the edge of the promised land into the promised land as they begin to conquer that land and inhabit it. And he's Joshua, the servant of the Lord. David is the king of Israel. But he's David, the servant of the Lord. These men acknowledge I am His servant. I am the slave of the Lord. And yet, there is a delegated authority in which they rule God's people for the will of God and the good of those people. Not by the strength of their own intellect or might, but a delegated authority that God Himself gives them. In the book of Philippians, this word occurs only one other time. And that's in chapter 2 and verse 7, where it speaks of Christ who emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Not only does God delegate his authority to, to bond slaves, but when Jesus came to earth, he honored the role of bond slave by assuming it himself in the incarnation. He took the form of a bond slave. you remember when the centurion came to Jesus, wanting Jesus to heal, was it his servant? Uh, Jesus offers to go with him, and, and he says, no, no, you don't have to do that. I also am a man under authority. He looks at Christ and he sees, here is a man under authority. There's a delegated authority. He does the things he does because there's an authority that's been delegated to him. So Paul says i am the bond servant or the bond slave of christ jesus riding from prison as he joyfully accepts his circumstances and awaits the outcome trusting that god will get the glory how would that kind of mindset affect you again it's not one that, that is natural to us But if you stop and remind yourself, I am the the servant or the slave of Christ Jesus, that's who I am. How would that affect you? How would that affect you at work or with your brothers and sisters or at home? There are times I get aggravated. Someone does something I don't like, and I get aggravated, and I think if they would only do this, you know I would and, and you you play out these scenarios in your head and think of what you'd like to say but you can't say, and all those kinds of good things, you know. And I find myself doing that sometimes, and I have to stop and remind myself, I belong to Christ Jesus. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. I, I am here to serve. Even Christ did not come. To be served, but to serve. I'm here to serve. And when I change the way I think about what's going on, I look at other people differently. I respond to situations differently. Have you found the same thing? Who am I? You can say, Well, I'm this, you know, and kind of puff up. Or you can say, I belong to Christ Jesus, I'm the slave of Christ Jesus. I'm to respond under his authority. Whatever that looks like. Whatever love demands. Love to him. Love to the other person. Obedience to him. Whatever that demands. That's how I'm to respond. That's what I'm to do. Well, let me get to the rest of this verse. (laughs) I really didn't mean to spend two weeks on verse one. So let me try to conclude this. Second A second thing that's unique to this introduction that Paul gives in verse 1 is that he addresses the letter not only to to the saints who are there, but specifically he mentions the overseers and the deacons. And you don't find that anywhere else in Paul's writing. And so the question kind of comes, why? And the truth is we're not given a reason. So you just have to kind of look and try to understand why might he do that. And I don't have a definite answer, but let me give you a, a couple of things that... I think are true and might be helpful. one is that he's obviously writing to a church body and not to just individuals, so not just to the individual saints who are in Philippi, but to the church at Philippi, even as he addresses them as saints, which you might could take in kind of like you know, all you individuals. no, I'm talking to the church that's there, the church along with its overseers and deacons, the officers of that church. You as a church, I'm addressing you. Another thing, by addressing them that way, perhaps he's urging all of them in the unique roles that they have as they think of what he's going to say to them about unity and how they respond to each other. I'm talking to you as I remind you that I am a bond slave of Christ Jesus. And so to the the congregation... As things happen and maybe you're tempted to dig your heels in and say, no, I'm not doing that or I won't go that way. You know, maybe you shouldn't, but maybe first you should stop and remind yourself, I am the bond slave of Christ Jesus and what would he have me do? Is it just my preference or what would he have me to do? And so there's a pause as you stop and think, how do I respond under that? But then also specifically then to these people who have a delegated authority within the body, how will you respond to the people, overseers and deacons? Well, remember, you're a bond slave of Christ. And even as you have been called to serve and to exercise, that's who you are. I think of um, the statement that Paul made in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, where he said, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus sake. We are, Paul says, I am the bond servant of the Corinthians for Jesus sake. And those who serve the body could say the same thing here. You're bond slaves for Jesus sake, because we're bond slave of him. We serve the body in this capacity for Jesus' sake. But then a third thing that is in some ways a very common thing, but in one way a very different thing, that is his addressing to the people as saints. Paul calls the believers in Philippi as saints. And that in itself is not unique to how he addresses the church, but um, it is worth noting the word saints... The word saints... In English sounds very different than the word holy or holy ones but in both Greek and Hebrew it's basically the same word and so as he calls them saints he's, he's talking about people who are holy holy ones people who've been set apart in a distinct kind of way set apart as those who have been privileged with unique access to the God who is holy When the high priest would enter into the holy of holies once a year. After going through that ritual that he had to go through to to do that. He would go in with his high priestly robes on. And there would be a turban on his head. And there was a gold plate on the turban. And engraved on that golden plate was holy to the Lord. He comes into that place as one who is holy to the Lord. And we have access to God through Jesus Christ. As those who have been made holy to the Lord. There's no other way. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were called to be a people who were a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We look at them in the Old Testament. They don't always live that way, and in times, at times they're they're called a stiff-necked people. And yet they're also the people among whom God dwelt. He puts His unique dwelling place there among them and allows them to have access to Him. And the, the real uniqueness about them was not how special they were in themselves, but it was that He calls them His people. In Deuteronomy chapter 7 and verse 6, God said, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you To be a people for His own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And in the New Testament, the Christian can say the same thing. God has chosen you to be His people. Out of all the people on the face of the earth. He has called you to be a holy people. And when Paul writes that, that idea, by addressing them as saints at Philippi. He writes it to a people who is unique in this way. Let me back up to Acts chapter 16 for just a moment. When Paul went to a new city and the Sabbath day came around, what was his custom? Do you remember? Where did he usually go on the Sabbath as he entered into a new place? Synagogue. Why would you go there? Because there are people there worshiping God. Maybe without understanding, but there are people who've gone there for the purpose of worshiping God. And so there's already some common ground and he could go there as a Jew and begin to talk to them and preach the gospel. Sometimes they got really mad at him. Sometimes there were people who were converted and a church was begun. When Paul got to Philippi in Acts chapter 16 on the Sabbath day, he didn't go to the synagogue. He went down to the riverside. Why? Why? It wasn't a synagogue. Do you know what the requirement was to have a synagogue? Ten Jewish men. The implication is, there are not ten Jewish men in all of Philippi. And what I'm trying to say is, this was a very Gentile kind of place. And Paul takes what has been a very Jewish term And calls these very Gentile people who come to believe in the living God through Jesus Christ. Saints. People chosen by God to Himself. Holy to the Lord. You Gentile Philippians. You saints. People who have privileged access to God. And so... Perhaps Lydia. Gentile saint. The Philippian jailer. Gentile saint. Perhaps that that demon possessed girl. Who has been delivered. Gentile saint. And Roman soldiers. Gentile saints. And whoever else populated that place. that, That were not Jewish before. Gentiles. That God has owned for himself. And you and I. If you belong to Christ Jesus, saints. It's not a term that we readily perhaps ascribe to ourselves. But the reality is this if you are in Christ Jesus, that's how God identifies you saint, set apart. To him. And if a saint. Then also a bond slave of Christ Jesus. They really go together. They both exist because of union with Christ Jesus. He writes to the saints in Philippians 1.1. The saints in Christ. They are saints because they are in Christ And because they're in Christ and are saints, they also belong to Him. And they are the bond slaves of Christ Jesus. Saints, yes, that's not all you are. Bond slaves, yes, that's not all you are. There are actually a number of different descriptions the Bible uses, isn't there? Be a good soldier of Christ Jesus. There are others. But here, these two, and they go hand in hand. Is that who you are? Owned by God as a saint. Because I'm owned by God as a saint. The bondslave of Christ Jesus. Not force, not cruelty, not you know, harsh subjugation, but conquered by love, willingly, gladly, joyfully. Obedient to this master.